Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Critical Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, guys, we had a really good podcast go up this week. Of course, I think every week my podcasts are good. I might be biased. But this week in particular, I think anybody out there who subscribes to this channel is going to really want to see and hear the story of Michael Krieger. Uh, He is a man who's been fighting for uh, rights to see his daughter. He actually has legal rights to do so, but he's been interfered with. uh, And his former, his ex-wife and the child's mother is a Scientologist. And the church itself has now gotten involved in this case. So um, anyway, just think that's something you guys might want to check out. Other than that, things have been, I don't know about, I'd like to know from you guys, how's the, how's the weather been? Because <laughs> it's been insane here in Denver. Highs, lows, ups, downs, rain and sun and uh, blistering heat and then thunderstorms like back and forth, back and forth. Anyway, it's been pretty, pretty crazy. And uh, I was just wondering where it is, how it is where you guys are, because I'm, you know, no climate change? I, I don't know. I think there's something going on. All right, let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Kevin Zay, do you think the anti-vaccination movement is very cult-like? Or is that more the case of people who don't have a good grasp on critical thinking and the scientific method believing something because they saw one study or heard it from someone who presents themselves as an authority on the subject? I hesitate to call anti-vaxxers stupid because, as you have said before, anyone can get drawn into a crazy belief system. Absolutely. So uh, as far as your first question, are they a cult? Well, they, there are certainly some people in the anti-vax movement, if we're going to call that community or movement or group of people, those words, then yes, there are people in that group who have extreme beliefs on the subject and demonstrate that extreme, those extreme beliefs uh, every time you try to talk to them on the topic. Uh, it's, it's, you know, just they're all bad and it becomes government and conspiracies and, and uh, all kinds of unprovable, unfalsifiable assertions that just kind of run you around in circles like any conspiracy theory. And there are people who are susceptible to falling for that level of belief and lack um, an objectivity and a, and a self-awareness to be able to apply their critical thinking skills to themselves. And I don't know if there's a word for that, but that is what's going on with them. Because these are people who, you know, you said they're, do you hesitate to call them stupid? And that's good because I've yet to meet a single person who has taken an anti-vax position who was a dummy. They, they had all kinds of things to cite and talk about and, and videos to link up to and documentaries and Point being, they had lots of references to go to that appeared to be factual, even, you know, objective, even even handed. Um, And they are not, but they appear to be that way. And so people can fall for them just based on a a good appearance. Uh, And, you know, this is where the the fact checking of the fact checking becomes so important. There it's not a black and white issue. And that's why there's I'll put this. Uh, on a spectrum, like I put almost everything on a spectrum of some kind. In other words, there are there are gradations or levels of of extremism, and there are levels of um, of belief or faith in a thing. There are levels of knowledge uh, about a thing. 
some people who are in the anti-vax movement, some of the reasons for being anti-vaxxers are completely debunked, very, very untrue, but they believe them still, right? They hold on to those beliefs and they think that's this is this is why I have to be uh, an anti-vaxxer. Uh, others that I've seen have spoken more intelligently on it. They go, look, not all vaccines are bad, but there are questions about this one and this one. And the uh, studies that get done on these vaccines, you know, I have questions about or shouldn't, you know, they don't get enough studies or tests. And there's some pros and some cons to some of those arguments. They're not completely off the rails um, in asking some of those questions, but they, they think that by merely asking the question, that shows some big, huge, gaping hole in medicine and science, which doesn't necessarily exist, for example. The idea that um, enough studies are not done on these vaccines before they're released to the general public. Well, they are certainly tested to the degree that they're not poisonous. <laughs> they're not killing more people than they're helping. Um, but you could say there are not enough tests being done, even if there were 10,000 tests being done on a thing, on a, on a drug, let's say, or a vaccine. Like, at what point is enough testing enough? That, that's, a, that's a legitimate question, and it's a tough one to answer. And so we have to look very uh, context-specific. Here's a vaccine that's going to literally save X number of people's lives if we give it to them. We have questions about its efficacy with the other you know, X number, or maybe there's a smaller number where there's a negative side effect, uh, negative effect, right? So, okay, well, now we have numbers to look at. Now we have to gauge what's the greater good here. And, you know, the, these kind of moral questions come up. But, you know, is further testing always the answer? Well, not necessarily. Because if there's a, you know, if the number of people this is going to objectively and immediately save is greater than the potential risk, then you should get it out to those people just based on the uh, concept of, uh, the greatest good for the greatest number, which is not in and of itself a, a, a horrible way to evaluate a, a problem. So anyway, I'm just throwing one little tiny thing out there of like one of the things that happens with the with the arguments that the anti-vaxxers use. But those are not stupid questions that the anti-vaxxers are asking. They're not stupid ideas. Uh, and they And they reveal that there is a nuanced, complicated answer. It's not a simple answer. It's not black and white. And, and just too many people just get so black and white thinking these days that that's where we, that's where we have the cult-like thinking enter in. And, and, uh, and then they start talking about the children and all this other stuff comes entering in. And, you know, it's all just appeal to emotion and, and not based on, you know, too, too much of the anti-vaxxer uh, arguments are not based on sound science, although they think they are and they sound like they are, but they're not. Or they're based on, you know, other logical fallacies, as I've just described. So it's not that all of the people who have questions about vaccinations or bring this up as an issue of concern, they're not all a bunch of cultists. They're not all crazy. But if they talk to you like they are, you might need to calm them down if you want to engage with them because they're used to being treated as a cultist. And that itself can become its own kind of problem is when we, you know, we see crazy ideas, crazy beliefs, and we think somebody subscribes to them deeply and extremely and assume things about that person, which we should not be assuming in any, in, at all, 
uh, and in fact could make them, could push them in that direction if we keep doing that to them and will certainly make them, you know, a bit punchy, you know, on the whole thing. So it's good to, you know, try to engage one-on-one uh, -on -one with people in a way that, you know, you know really where they're coming from and they know where you're coming from and, you know, and in this ide most ideal of ideal worlds, we would all get along, right? <laughs> Leanne Ross, do you know the origin of the word engram? It appears in non-Scientology dictionaries as the following, a hypothetical permanent change in the brain accounting for the existence of memory a memory trace. But it has its own specialized definition in Scientology as a moment of pain and unconsciousness, which is stored in the reactive mind. Okay, yeah, this is always an interesting one, Leanne. Thanks for bringing this up. I did look into the origin of the word engram, and it comes uh, from a researcher, a memory researcher named uh, Richard Seaman, or Simone, or Semon. It's a little hard to tell. It's S-E-M-O-N. I believe he was German because the word has a has German uh, roots or use or something in its etymology. It goes, it's, comes from in, n, which is in, and gram, referring to like gram in its in its written or word wordy sense, grammatical grammar, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's in uh, a letter. Uh, this in this case, gram meaning a letter. So inside a letter. So I think the idea here is that you have memory, and you're talking here about memory, and, um, and whereas, the, whereas there are um, memories in our brain, stored in our brain, that are stored in the neurons or cells somehow, they, they are positing here, um, you know, you, you, would, uh, you would be seen inside, you know, if a word was a memory, then you'd be seen inside it to what it is that's making it up, and that would be an engram, right, an engram. So I think that's, anyway, if, that, if that's clear, I'm, I'm probably not speaking as clearly as I could be. Anyway, as far as, um, so that's the origin of the word, and Hubbard grabbed it up as a, as a medical term. He said in Dianetics that he used the term because it's a, it's a not often used medical term, which seemed to apply because it was the, the idea in Dianetics is that these moments of pain and unconsciousness that were stored Hubbard didn't know where they were stored, and he made a big deal about that in Dianetics. He said, we're not addressing structure. We don't know where this stuff is located. And over the years, he went all in on cellular memory and activity being uh, important to life function and memory and all the things that are happening to a person. He went all in on that, and then he went all the way out of it and said, nope, it's all the spirits, all the, it's all the Phaeton. And uh, who cares what the cells are doing in light and light and the, the, the biology isn't really that important. And, and the reactive mind became a, a non, it was sort of a physical, but non-body. It wasn't in the cells. It was in some sheets of electrical energy, uh, which I'm always making motions to hear when I'm talking about them. And I don't know why, but there are these sheets of energy that are supposed to store your memories and you carry these around with you. And this is what your mind is composed of, according to Scientology principles. In medicine, much more interestingly, as far as I'm concerned, because the sheets of energy thing have no basis in any science of any kind. Nobody's ever measured them or seen them or taken them apart or or sense them in any way. Uh, so whatever, you might as well say blue Smurfs, you know, whisper secrets in your ears all day and that's how you remember things. 
in real science, <laughs> engrams are hypothetical because they because memory is complicated and not at all figured out. Uh, not even remotely figured out. Memory happens all over the place in your brain. All kinds of places are firing off different things to uh, activate when you are you know, remembering things. And uh, so they don't have this nailed down. And that's why part of the definition is a hypothetical uh, instance of change, uh, permanent change in the brain. It might well be that brain's memory, certain memory cells, uh, are temporary holders. They hold the data kind of similar to RAM in a computer, right? It holds it, but turn the computer off, it's all gone. Well, maybe whatever, you know, can turn on and off our memories. I, you know, we just don't, we're not, we're not understanding that at all yet. It's, there's lots of theories, lots of ideas as research gets done on this. And I, and I find that stuff way more fascinating because it's actually based on things you can see and, and look at and, and measure and stuff in the brain. I find that stuff infinitely comp complicated and fascinating. The, the wooey, you know, sheets of energy, it's all in your mind and your mind is something you've been carrying around with you for billions of years. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know. So there you go. Tyler. Is it possible that Donald Trump is exploiting people's fears of the far left to get people on his side? I think that is exactly what is happening. I do not support SJWs or Antifa, but I am much more afraid of the far right than I am of the far left. Are we headed towards a Christian dictatorship? Okay, Tyler, thanks for this question. Uh, kind of a follow-up to the podcast I did a couple weeks ago. Um, and first off, let me say that, yes, I do believe that the president has used fear of the left and symbology and words and insults and various other things to stoke the flames of, of fear and, and hatred and, and uh, animosity towards the left from the right. I think he has definitely done a championship job of doing, of doing that. And that, that's not a criticism. It's an objective statement. That's what the guy's been doing. He's been doing many other things too, but you know, that's the answer to the question. Um, as far as uh, your statement about, you know, not supporting SJWs or Antifa, but you're, you know, more afraid of the right than the left, I think both sides are equally frightening. Uh, in terms of the real extreme ends, the, the, the ones on the far, far left, the Antifa, you know, anarchist types, and the ones on the far, far right are your neo-Nazis. And, and uh, I, think, I think both sides, both sides of these, these extremist activities are small groups. They are viciously loud. So they make it sound and seem like there's tons and tons and tons of support for them and their methods. But I think, but there isn't really. I think most Americans don't want to have anything to do with either one of these folks, these, these groups, because they are uh, all about using violence to further their ends. They, 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 go, oh, they, they double down, triple down, quadruple down on that over and over and over again. I have had many, many uh, encounters with Antifa people on Twitter. Uh, and watch their videos and watch what they say and, and what they're talking about. And they do. They, you know, you challenge them on, listen, man, maybe there's a nonviolent answer to the problem. Now I'm the Nazi, right? Because I said that, because I asserted that maybe there are peaceful solutions. Just saying that it got me, you know, uh, days of harassment on Twitter. So 
Uh, I'm not, uh, you know, some snowflake or something. I'm not, I'm not whining about getting uh, stalked on Twitter. I'm pointing out that these people are, the Antifa people, are extremists. And the, I think what matters to them more than their uh, ideology or their, their stated purposes is the violence. I think the people on that end are drawn to the violence. I think it's the same on the right with the neo-Nazis. And I think it's the same with uh, in extremist Islamic groups, for example, or terrorist organizations, IRA, let's go to Ireland. All these groups have people who are drawn to them like, like moths to a flame who crave engaging in violence. They are violent people. So the cause becomes, you know, oh yeah, that's a good excuse to go beat some people up or, or uh, you know, throw some bricks or punch some Nazis or whatever, you know, whatever's getting you off on that. So that is problematic for me, uh, big time. And I, I look at both ends as equally bad and equally dangerous and equally small, you know, little tiny groups. Uh, we're talking hundreds, maybe a few thousands. Uh, when it comes to people who will say they are on those sides or, or, or say that they're really into those ideals and yes, go punch a Nazi, but they're not going out punching Nazis. That's a far larger group of people. Those are the Twitter folks and the social media and, you know, antagonists and, and people who argue about it and the ones who are going to leave nasty comments on this, on the show this week about it, uh, because of, you know, because of what I'm saying here, those, those guys are far more numerous, uh, but they're not, I don't consider them dangerous just because they, you know, criticize me or my position or want to argue or, or get really vitriolic in the way they talk. You know, that's, that's, that's not in and of itself uh, something we should be overly concerned about. Uh, passionate, you know, debate and energetic belief. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's when you start preaching violence against people you oppose that we, um, that I think we start having real problems. So anyway, there you go. Martin. I recently heard your podcast with Steve Kanan and was very fond of it, but from a German perspective, I would like to argue a bit against the universal freedom of speech chant you both so happily agreed upon. Freedom of speech surely is a powerful and necessary concept, and it has its merits, but it is not as simple as it seems. Nobody has total freedom of speech, as there always are restrictions. Public libel and slander are illegal everywhere and cannot be justified by arguing freedom of speech. Stakes may be high to prove it, but Anglo-Saxon and especially U.S. justice make it easy to claim threatening financial compensations. This risk alone may lead to a kind of preemptive censorship, which in effect is contradicting freedom of speech. In contrast, most Central European justice systems have broader legal limitations and may be more willing to dispute statements in speech or writing, but penalties for breaking those laws begin very low a few hundred euro fine, and compensations are only rarely awarded on an also low basis, taking only proven damages into account. Severe sentences are very rare, but possible if a person or an organization stubbornly doesn't refrain from repeating such acts again and again. On this basis, Central European countries have laws against defamatory hate speech directed upon minorities, religious, ethnical, gender, etc., which I deem prudent. For me, and probably most Europeans, such arguments are a kind of libel or slander against a group of people instead of a single person or a business or entity. 
Isn't it a bit curious that in the Anglo-Saxon justice, a business or a so-called church has more rights to defend itself than a minority of humans? In Germany, Austria, and for weird reasons I don't know, Switzerland and Spain, those or similar laws also specifically prohibit national socialist propaganda and Holocaust denial, with some countries also regulating display of a few national socialist emblems like swastikas. I understand this out of history, but I'm no big fan of this legislation as it naturally bears the hallmarks of cementing truth by statute. Nevertheless, I do support the idea to limit freedom of speech if it is used to defame individuals, entities, or clearly defined groups of people. And in my critical thinking, I don't see plausible arguments to feel our overall freedom limited by that. I would be interested in your thoughts. Okay, freedom of speech. Yeah, nothing, uh, nothing slippery here. Um, I, you know, on this issue, I pretty much just go back to John Stuart Mill. Um, you know, he's the he is the the master of the whole concept of freedom of speech, as far as I'm concerned. And he, what he wrote about it is pretty much where I come from on it. Um, I personally believe that when a public figure has a platform that is significant and matters and is going to influence people, that they don't have the right to just stand there and lie. Uh, they certainly do not have the right to tell destructive lies that influence people or, or, or you know, um, get people riled up and want to commit violence against the targets of that speech, right? And I think here, of course, to, you know, the Alex Jones types uh, or politicians uh, who use their platforms to incite hatred against other groups of people who they disagree with for some reason or have decided arbitrarily to make a target out of in order to distract from some other issue that they don't want anybody paying attention to, so they create a situation. And that happens all the time. So, you know, are we all, are we all at each other's throats for very good reasons, or are we being actively lied to? You know, I, I think there, is our, there are responsibilities uh, that public figures have to tell the truth, you know, as sure as they know it, but, you know, I think that's, I think that's problematic. And, uh, and yet how do you enforce that? Right? Not sure. Not sure how that works. So all I can say is that's kind of where I, how I think of, of my responsibilities and, and what other people's responsibilities should be as public figures. Libel and slander against other individuals, that should take care of a lot of that. Uh, if you can, one, if you can prove it, and two, public figures, you know, at least in the U.S., I'm not sure exactly precisely how the laws work. I couldn't explain in detail how, how, what the mechanics of this are, but I do know that, you know, if you are an acknowledged public figure with a platform and, and people are going to listen to you just because of who you are or what you do, then the laws are loosened quite a bit about what can be said about you um, by others that not be and not fall under libel or slander. So maybe there is some solutions in that in 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 tweaking some of that as well because I don't know that just because somebody is a public figure that they should be lied about uh, or that violence should be incited against them or 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 right. So so maybe there's some tweaking that could be done here, and I agree that tweaking is necessary because I agree that regulation of free speech is necessary. It shouldn't be that any single thing that you want to have come out of your mouth in any context at any time should be okay, because there are times when it's definitely not. 
Uh, it's not socially acceptable. It's not morally acceptable. Or in some cases, it is illegal. And, um, and I think that those kind of laws are going to change and should change over time as contexts change, as cultures change, as meaning changes. You know, the, 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 the seven bad words you used to not be able to say on TV, I think there's only one or two left on that list because times have changed, right? If we were going to make a new list of names that you would never, ever, ever be allowed to say on TV, it'd probably be a different set of seven words, right? Uh, so we should have the ability to update our, our regulations and, and laws, and we do. And anyway, I'm just saying that that's a natural thing. So commenting on any specific words or, or, or things like that that are problematic, well, you know, check back in a year or two or three or ten and It'll be quite different. So anyway, I don't know. There's just some comments on free speech. Thanks for listening to my diatribe. Justin Elson. I've been watching your stream for about two years now. Was there anything you learned in Scientology that has been helpful for you outside of the church and in your current life? You know, I get to ask this question all the time. I've answered it a few times in the past. And uh, coming back around to it, circling around to it now... I'm going to say no. I've said yes many, many times. I've talked about the communications class. I've talked about the TRs. I've talked about the studying and looking words up and stuff. But here's the thing. Those were experiences that I had that I have learned from and carried on. And the things I do now in communicating with other people, in studying things, in, in reading and in researching, in writing... None of what I do these days has anything to do with Scientology as it's applied or practiced. I don't, I don't communicate with other people by making sure I stare deeply into their eyes and maintain a constant visage of, of calm rationality. You know, I, that's not how I am. <laughs> you guys know that. You see me talk here. I'm, I'm constantly in motion. I'm constantly using my hands. I'm, you know, I, I'm very emotive. Um, so my TRs are not in, quote-unquote. Uh, I'm not applying Scientology here talking to you guys. I'm not applying Scientology when I'm researching things. I don't have a dictionary or a little demo kit next to me. So, no, you know, I don't use, I don't even think about anymore suppressive people or the ARC triangle or any of that stuff, the eight dynamics. It's it, that, That's... I have to kind of, oh yeah, kind of haul that back into my thinking now. That's kind of where that stuff is gone. It's gone away. So, so really now at this point, to answer your question, uh, no, there is nothing from Scientology that I use in my life and I don't have any reason to use any part of Scientology any, ever again. It is time for Flash Answers. Alex Olson, do you think there is a reason why, especially in the United States, there are many cults where members are so fanatic? Is there anything in the American psyche that causes cults to pop up more frequently compared to Europe where there are cults but not as many as in the U.S.? Does it relate to U.S. history where there is no official bond between the state and the church where we as Europeans have a closer connection between the church and the state? No, <laughs> there is no difference in the psyche of the Americans versus the Europeans. 
that's causing America to have more cults than there are in Europe. Believe me, there are plenty of cults in Europe. Um, the, the, the culture is not something that's going to protect you from uh, being in a cult, and it's not going to really statistically significantly change the numbers. If there are if there are reasons why there's less cults in Europe, and I don't know that there are, but if there are less cults in Europe than there are in the United States, it would be due to other factors than culture molding thinking, which is keeping Europeans proofed up against cultic thinking. And the question about church and state is is um, kind of belies a misunderstanding about this possibly because. Cults don't have it is cults don't have to be religious at all. There are plenty of businesses, sports clubs, uh, ladies sewing circles, and karate dojos that are fully destructive cults. So, um, so when you broaden your view that way, it might become more clear why I'm sort of like, yeah, okay, whatever with this question. But I'm taking it up because I did want to address that. It's it is it is uh, not true that there's. Um, some kind of big uh, cultural significant, you know, proofing up against cults. I don't think that's true. Danielle, Chris, do you think David Miscavige knows that he's a fraud and full of crap? Or do you think he really believes that he is as significant as he is? Oh, no, I am absolutely positive he believes 100% in his own greatness. And he is all about, um, you know, pumping up the me. <laughs> I am sure that is how he is. I And I don't... Um, he might know about fraudulent activities that he's doing, of course. I'm not thinking, I'm not asserting that he's so delusional that he doesn't know that he engages in criminal activity or fraud, or that Scientology isn't a fraud. I mean, I think he thinks that. But I don't think he thinks he himself is a fraud or a bad person. He's the hero of his own story, of course. Orange Crush. I presume YouTube provides you logs on visitors. Have you ever gotten visitors from IPs that were delegated to Flag, Goldbase, or the big stuff in LA? Actually, you presume wrong. I do not have IP addresses for all the visitors to my YouTube channel. I can see IP addresses for visitors who leave comments and, and stuff like that and visitors to my uh, website, to my blog, but my YouTube channel doesn't have that information. Uh, so I could not be able to see if I got IPs from Scientology centers. Okay, guys, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me prattle on here. If you are finding this content informative, educational, and, and entertaining, then consider joining me on Patreon. Uh, that is what keeps the lights on here and keeps the show going and allows me to do uh, all the work and research that's required to get this uh, and keep this channel going. All right, guys, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.